Hey, uh, just want to uh, say hello to our Traders Point family at all of our locations. Those of you joining us online, uh, we're so glad that you're with us today. And if you have a Bible or a device with a Bible on it, I encourage you to find Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 is where we're going to be camped out today here in a few minutes. And uh, as you're turning there, I'd like to pray for us. Obviously, uh, we had a, a significant event that happened right here in our own city this past Thursday night that's made national and international news headlines. And many of you are just aware of the, the shooting that took place at the FedEx facility right here in our city. And uh, this is just one more reminder uh, that we live in a really broken, hurting, fallen world. And uh, there's a lot of solutions that people are trying to throw at scenarios like that. What I like to do is just uh, center our attention right now upon God. And let's just uh, go to our Father today. Uh, Father, um, man, we come to you today with hearts that are already hurting and exhausted, only to wake up to more bad news. And so God, I want to just lift up the people that were directly involved, family members, friends, coworkers, neighbors, that you would comfort those who lost loved ones, whose lives have been impacted by this. And uh, God, I just pray that you would um, bring some healing to our city, that you could turn this in some way for good, that you'd remind us of where um, our true hope lies. And so uh, we just want to start off today just lifting that up to you, just surrendering that over to you. We don't have the solutions to these problems. These are God-sized problems and these God-sized solutions. And so we give this to you now in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. Well, uh, if you joined us last week, whether in person or online, uh, you were here as our teaching pastor, Ryan Bramlett, kicked off a series of messages I've been looking forward to for months now uh, called Dirt. And I know that's kind of an unusual name for a title of a message series, but what we're doing is we're talking about the way that things grow uh, personally and spiritually, as well as identifying some of the things that can hinder that growth and make it challenging. And to do that, we're spending four weeks unpacking one story that Jesus told that had such an impact that three of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all included it in their narratives. And the title of the story has traditionally come to be known as the parable of the seeds or the parable of, of the sower. Now, what you need to know is that Jesus, um, the original context in which he told this story would have been within an agrarian uh, society. So as he talks about uh, the soil and the seed in the soil, it would have meant something unique to them because uh, many of them worked with it every day. And for m most of us, many of us, not all, but many of us, we don't work with soil every day. Now, some of you grew up on a farm. I know that we're in central Indiana. There's farmland all around us. Some of you are gardeners. But for many of us, when you think about um, dirt, I don't know what comes to my mind as I think about like it's a mess, right? It's, it's dirt, it's dirty. Like I, I love playing in the dirt when I was a kid. My mom was constantly telling me to get in the bathtub. And so when I think about dirt, I think about something that's messy, but what we need to understand, our attention is drawn towards the fact that um, dirt is where the growth happens. And oftentimes, ironically, growth can be kind of messy. And you gotta, if you want to grow anything in the soil, you, you've got to prepare the soil. You've got to pay attention to the nutrients in the soil. And you've got to prepare it and aerate it and fertilize it. One of my uh, favorite uh, memories growing up was going over to my grandparents' house. They had uh, the largest garden in my hometown, uh, Joplin, Missouri. And that's not just me like exaggerating. Like that's a fact. Like uh, the newspaper did a story on their garden every year. Not a whole lot going on in our hometown, all right? And uh, they would come out, took up their whole backyard. And, and I remember going over there in the summers as a kid. And one of my favorite things to do is my grandpa would hand me a bucket and a shovel. And he would, let's dig up some potatoes. And so we go to this part of the garden where there was, um, you know, greenery coming up out of the surface. But there wasn't anything growing on it. It's not like a tomato plant where you see them growing off the vines. There, there wasn't anything there until you would stick the shovel in the dirt and then bring it up. And all of these potatoes would rise to the surface. And you would see that there were some things growing underneath the surface of the soil. And my grandfather would just take it as teaching opportunities. He would, he would tell me how a gardening was a, a year-long process and he would prepare the soil and he would aerate it and he would fertilize it so that way it had enough nutrients to grow the, the, what the, the vegetables underneath the surface. 
And I learned this important principle, that the kind of dirt that you have will determine the kind of growth that you see. In other words, if you and I want to see results in our lives, what we might call like fruit, or we want to see different results from the ones that we are getting, pay attention to the soil of your heart. And I don't know about you, but I almost exclusively have a tendency to focus about what's going on above the surface. But nothing, uh, but there's nothing you'll see um, above the surface that didn't start below. You and I won't experience changes at the top until we get to the root. And Jesus understood this better than anybody. And so instead of just telling us that in the form of a propositional statement, which he could have, he tells a story to help us understand this. Now, many of you know that Jesus could have easily taught a masterclass in storytelling. It was his favorite method when it came to teaching. In fact, throughout his entire teaching ministry, he used over 100 metaphors and 36 different stories. And it's easy to understand why. He knew what you and I likely know as well is that story is the language of the heart. Our minds are intellectually stimulated with facts and contents, but we aren't likely to apply those contents or to be moved by those contents until we hear a story. And so Jesus would tell stories, not, not just to draw us in or to entertain us or to keep our attention. He had a different goal. The stories that he told were called parables. And one great description of a parable is that they are earthy stories with heavenly meanings. See, Jesus' intent was to, by telling these stories, he was trying to help us visualize what the kingdom of God is like and how it works and how it manifests itself on earth. And in the case of the parable of the seeds, he wants to help us to understand the way that personal and spiritual growth happens. And maybe even more importantly, why it sometimes doesn't happen. Now, if you've been listening to me preach and teach for any length of time at all, you, you've probably picked up on the fact that one of my favorite ways of teaching is to read a little bit of the passage and then explain it. Read and explain, I just kind of call it unpacking the text. But what I like to do today is just read the parable in one sitting, kind of just let it stand on its own two feet the way that Jesus taught it. And then we'll kind of go back and make some observations and some application. So it says, starting off in Luke chapter eight, verse four, one day, Jesus told a story in the form of a parable to a large crowd that had gathered from many towns to hear him. A farmer went out to plant his seed, and as he scattered it across his field, some seed fell on a footpath where it was stepped on and the birds ate it. Other seed fell among rocks. It began to grow, but the plant soon wilted and died for lack of moisture. Other seed fell among thorns that grew up with it and choked out the tender plants. Still other seed fell on fertile soil. This seed grew and produced a crop that was a hundred times as much as had been planted. And when he said this, he called out, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. And he replied, well, you are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of God, but I use parables to teach the others so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And he's quoting Isaiah out of the Old Testament. When they look, they won't really see. When they hear, they won't understand. Well, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is God's word. And the seeds that fell on the footpath represent those who hear the message only to have the devil come and take it away from their hearts, prevent them from believing and being saved. The seeds on the rocky soil represent those who hear the message and receive it with joy, but since they don't have deep roots, they believe for a while, then they fall away when they face temptation. The seeds that fell among the thorns represent those who hear the message, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and so they never grow into maturity. And the seeds that fell on the good soil represent Honest, good-hearted people who hear God's word, they, they cling to it and patiently produce a huge harvest. I suppose maybe one of the first things that I just want to point out is that it says that Jesus is addressing a large crowd. And what that means is that there would have been a variety of perspectives 
from the people that were listening to him teach. And so there, were, there would have been some that had grown up in a, a Jewish household and others who maybe grew up in a Greek and some who had a different perspective and some who had maybe adopted their parents' faith and some that had walked away from it and maybe some that were open to it. And I just find it fascinating that Jesus understood that. He was addressing a, a large crowd. And, and I kind of know what that's like. It's like a relatively speaking, like every weekend, there's like a, a decent sized crowd that will listen to uh, the message that, is, that I've got to say for that, for that particular morning. And can I just tell you that it's overwhelming at times. I, I can't think about it too long. As near as I can tell, like, I don't know, there'll be something like 20, 30,000 people, both in person, online, and later in the week that'll listen to this message. And as I prepare it, I sit and I think to myself, okay, who's going to listen to this? And it's sort of like preparing a meal for a big group of people. Any of you ever had to do that? It's like, well, I don't like that. Or I, I, don't, I don't eat uh, vegetables or I don't eat meat. And you're like trying to produce like uh, this meal for a people with a variety of perspectives. And oftentimes I think to myself is, are there soft enough foods that people that can take it and, and digest it? And is there gonna be meatier substance for those of you that are maybe a little bit more uh, mature in your faith, you've been following Jesus longer and it's, it's overwhelming at times. Jesus addresses a large crowd. What does he do? He tells a story. And it hits every single one of them. And there are only a handful of times out of all the parables that Jesus told that he would explain the parable after. Most of the time he didn't do that. Often he would just tell it, drop the mic and walk away. And he's like, you figure it out. But in this instance, the disciples wisely asked him what it meant. And the fact that Jesus takes the time to tell them tells us something. It tells us that he wants this to be crystal clear in all of our lives. And so he says it very clearly. He says that the seed represents God's word. Now I want to maybe even get a little bit more descriptive than that, that the seed represents the content of God's word. Because if I just say God's word or Bible, some of you have like already written it off. And I want to talk about the content of God. So what's the content of God's word? What is the overarching thing that the Bible is trying to say? And if I could kind of give you the Cliff Notes version of that, I would say that the Bible's trying to say that there is a God, that you are not him. And he created you in this entire world, in the whole universe, and then things went horribly wrong. And we are all fallen and broken, and we know it. And we're reminded every time we look at the news and look in the mirror. But God is faithful, and he's just. And I had a debt that I could never pay, so God sent Jesus to pay the debt that I owed, but only he could pay. And so I'm saved by grace through faith, through the finished work of Jesus on my behalf. I don't bring anything to the table. I can't pay it off. I respond to it. And then he promises, hey, one day, one day, I'm going to return and I'm keeping a record of everything that has caused you to cry. And I'm going to wipe those tears from your cheeks. And I'm going to come and I'm going to heal and I'm going to restore and I'm going to make right all the things that have gone terribly wrong in this broken, jacked up world. So please don't lose heart. And God doesn't want anything from you. He wants everything for you. That's the message of God's word. That's the content of it. And Jesus says it's like seed. And it's not the only time that that metaphor is used. I'm reminded that it's used in uh, Isaiah 55. So that the word of God, when it, when it goes out, it won't return empty or void. And can I tell you that sometimes at the end of preaching a message, that's the only thing I have to cling to. And I'll walk off the stage and go, well, I tried. Bomb that one. And I'm reminded of Isaiah 55. Hey, as long as God's word was in it, it'll produce something. First Corinthians chapter three, Paul says, hey, I, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God was the one who made it grow. See, the metaphor is brilliant because it reminds us that God's word functions more like a seed rather than just a faith propositional statement that somebody either believes or doesn't believe, rejects or accepts. There's a whole lot more going on under the surface. See, conversion, like when somebody gives their life to Christ, that usually isn't something that just um, happens all of a sudden, even if it appears that way. Like if somebody gives their life to Christ and it seems like a dramatic like conversion right there on the spot, chances are the Holy Spirit's been doing something in the soil of their hearts for a while. And the day that you gave your life to Christ likely was not the first day that you contemplated doing so. 
See, the Holy Spirit's been working on you, whether you're aware of it or not. Like he's wooing you. He's, he's chasing you down. He's speaking if you're listening. He's speaking through nature. He's speaking through other people. He's speaking in your own conscience. He's speaking through God's word. He's cultivating the soil of your heart. And the picture of a seed helps us to think of a farmer who just like my grandpa in his garden, prepares the soil, sows the seed, fertilizes waters, and then waits for a crop. And producing the crop isn't one event that just suddenly happens. It's a process that occurs over time. And part of the truth that Jesus is communicating through this parable is that God's word may take a little bit of time to bear fruit in your life, but it will if you cling to it and you're patient and you wait. See, there are a wide range of responses to God's word. Maybe you've noticed that. Maybe in your life, maybe in your spouse's life, somebody that you know, and some people believe it to be God's word and some people don't think that it is. A lot of responses to God's word. The thing is, is that the difference isn't the seed, but the soil the seed falls into. God's word is, cons is consistent. My heart is not. And oftentimes when you feel like, well, this isn't working or I don't understand it. Problem isn't the seed. I need to take a look at the soil of my heart. I don't know if any of you have seen the documentary called The Biggest Little Farm, um, but uh, we really enjoyed watching that as a family. And uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, without giving too much away, the, the story is about this couple, uh, uh, John and uh, Molly Chesters, and they, they buy a rundown farm uh, north of Los Angeles. And they had this dream to have this farm, but the dream was threatened when they realized that the soil was so compacted and devoid of organic matter that they could hardly break it with a shovel. And at one point in the documentary, John says, the soil is dead and we have no idea how to bring it back to life. Well, they hire a soil consultant. I didn't even know there was such a thing. And the soil consultant uh, recommends that they build a state-of-the-art compost tea system utilizing the waste of earthworms. Sounds kind of gross. And uh, this waste of the earthworms, they kind of draw that out. They put it into their irrigation system that they kind of spray out across the land. They added all kinds of animals for manure. They planted multiple kinds of crops. And slowly this farm came back to life because the soil came back to life. And at one point, the soil consultant says this in the documentary, and I wrote it down. He said this, plants build soil. And where do plants come from? Though they come from seed. And Jesus says the seed is God's word. So the seed produces plants. The plants build the soil. And that is so important for us to understand because oftentimes when we're not getting the results that we want in life, the, the fruit, the vegetables, the stuff that comes from the soil, we think, well, man, the problem must be the seed. And so I'll, I'll go find some different seed. I'll, I'll find a different self-help book. I'll follow a new belief system. I'll travel down a new path of enlightenment. Maybe we need to go to a different church. Maybe, maybe that's where it is. And I don't know, maybe, maybe that is the case. But oftentimes we don't necessarily stop to examine the soil of our heart. If the soil is dead, then it doesn't matter what kind of seed you put on it. Nothing's going to grow. And so in the parable, Jesus says there are four places where the seed lands. He says it lands on a path. It lands on some rocks. Lands among some thorns and in good soil. And this is a metaphor for life. See, in Palestine, there would have been these well-worn paths that would have gone through the cultivated lands. It's where the sower would have walked as he or she is scattering seed. And so inevitably, as they reach into the bag and scatter the seed, some of that seed would have fallen onto the hardened path. And it was so hard that the seed couldn't germinate beneath the surface of the soil. So it'd be blown away by the wind or eaten by a small animal or bird. There would have been other places in the fields where the, the seed made it into the soil, but it was a thin layer of soil and just underneath it, it was filled with rocks. And Jesus is saying that the gospel message might fall into a person's heart, but it doesn't penetrate very deep. It doesn't take root. There's an initial response. Maybe you adopted the faith of your parents, but as soon as you graduate and got out on your own, you just walked away. And trials and challenges and temptations and hurt kept the seed from getting rooted in the soil. So when life got hard, when things didn't go as planned, when people hurt you, especially other Christians, 
you, you walked away. Man, can I just tell you that I hear that story a lot. It's like, well, I believe for a while, but I got hurt in the church or I had a bad experience or these Christians hurt me in some way and I walked away. And can I just say that um, my uh, heart goes out to that because I get it. Can I just tell you that um, prior to becoming a pastor, some of the people that have hurt me the most in life have been other Christians. Some of the people that have hurt me the most are the ones within the church. And then I became a pastor and that just became more intensified. See, see here's what I mean. Um, uh, yesterday was my birthday and I had a number of you on social media like reach out and say, you know, say all kinds of really, really nice things. And I had two or three people DM me and say, boy, must be nice to have all these people loving on you. Must be nice to be you, Aaron. And I was like, well, it, yes, it is. But can I show you some of the other things that people say that aren't so nice? <laughs> can, I, can I just tell you that, like, like, I never thought I would do this. Like, I felt God calling me to teach and preach the word. I never wanted to be in a big church. I never wanted to have this platform. I just wanted to teach and preach God's word. And so um, uh, everything gets intensified. When everybody knows you and you don't necessarily know them, everybody, everything's intensified. So the good things that people say, oh my gosh, it embarrasses me so much. I don't deserve it. And then the bad things that people say, well, I probably deserve a little of it, but it's everything's intensified. And some of the people that have hurt me the most have been Christians, but I'm not gonna walk away from Jesus because of it. See, listen, I've said this, I said this maybe 10 years ago and I try to come back to it occasionally, is that just because somebody follows Jesus poorly doesn't mean that he isn't worth following. I was like, well, the church is full of hypocrites. Yeah. Like that's what it means to be fallen and broken and all in process. We're, we're gonna be hurt regardless of who, if somebody says they're a Christian or not. And so many of us, or uh, maybe many of you, I know I'm speaking to somebody right now, you hear the message. Maybe you've been coming so long, you could even explain the message. Like you know your, in fact, can I just say this? Some of you are really smart cookies <laughs> and you know it and you enjoy running intellectual circles around your believing friends. In fact, you know your Bible better than most Christians that you know know it. But your heart is as hard as the path and the rocks in the soil that's described. And if that's the case, then where's that getting you? See, this is where all of us have to do a real gut check when it comes to our motives for believing in a God. What are you looking for Jesus to do for you anyway? And are you coming to him on your terms or are you coming to him on his terms? And what happens when after you give your life to Jesus, you get cancer? Because that happens. What do you do when you give your life to Jesus and your spouse walks out on you? Because that happens. What do you do when you give your life to Jesus and somebody that you love passes away? Because that is gonna happen. You gotta ask yourself, is the seed going to take root and bear fruit, or the first time I hit some rocks, I walk away. See, we've got to remember these important principles right here. We can focus on God's promise or our circumstance. You can't do both. And so when you, our circumstances are the rocks. They're hard and they're painful. And in that moment, you can focus almost solely exclusively on your circumstance. You come back to God's promise. And you remember what he's told you. See, one leads to fruitfulness. The other leads to barrenness. It reminds me of something that God said in the Old Testament to Ezekiel in chapter 33, 32. He says, you are to them like one who sings a lovely song with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument for they hear what you say, but they will not do it. And that, does that describe anybody that you know? Is that descriptive of you? It's descriptive of me. There are a lot of times when I hear God's voice, doesn't mean I'm gonna do it. And every time I hear God's voice and I don't do it, my heart gets a little bit harder. 
And maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe you come and you tune in and, and, and you listen. Maybe, maybe you bring your spouse and he's not really into it. He just comes because he's tired of hearing you gripe about it. And he sits right next to you and he hears the same message that you hear and your heart is melted, but his is unfaced. And he just sort of sits there calloused and unresponsive. The gospel is heard, but it doesn't take root. You ever wonder why? Like, why is it that somebody is moved and somebody isn't? Um, in his best-selling book, Into Thin Air, the author, John Krakauer, describes some of the challenges that the climbers experienced as they attempted to peak Mount Everest. And one of the men that he mentions in the book is a guy by the name of Andy Harris, who was one of the expedition leaders. And one day he stayed up at the peak a little bit too long. And the rest of the climbers, they had already descended when he began the descent all by himself, which is not wise. And about halfway down, he became in dire need of oxygen. He was oxygen deprived. And so he radios to base camp because he knows he's not gonna make it without some additional oxygen. And the climber said, hey, Andy, we, we left you with two full oxygen tanks. Do you see them? And he said, yes, they're right in front of me, but they're empty. And they said, Andy, did you check them? And he goes, no, but, I, but they're empty. And they realized, they knew that they were full. They left him with him full. They realized that because he was so oxygen deprived, he wasn't thinking straight. And he thought they were empty when they were full. And so because he thought they were empty, he didn't take the oxygen. In other words, he was missing what was right in front of him, the oxygen, because of what was missing within him, the oxygen. And because it was missing within him, he didn't see what was right in front of him. See, the climbers plead with him from base camp. They're like, it's right there, Andy. It's immediately available, but he wouldn't listen. He wouldn't take it. And you know what? I see that all the time. If the seed is God's word, then you and I are the soil. And we can spend a lot of time scrutinizing the quality of the seed, aka can God's word really be trusted, which I'm not saying that we shouldn't ask thoughtful questions about it, and there's good answers to it, but we do that almost exclusively and we never examine the condition of the soil. So I want to do that today with this question. Can I just ask you, both in person and online, at the end of a really tough year, how's your heart? When was the last time that you asked yourself that question? Or are you too distracted with social media and things going on around the world and the anger and the blame and the fear that is constantly drawing our attention away from the only thing you can do anything about anyway? How's your heart? This has happened for hundreds and hundreds of years, but we see it more readily now because of the instant access to news information. But I've been reading more and more here lately of well-known Christians, uh, maybe um, artists or authors or pastors who are publicly announcing on Twitter that they are no longer Christians, no, no longer following Jesus. Gets all kinds of different responses. Um, I can think back to my Bible college days when I was uh, training with other young men and women for full-time ministry. People so excited and on fire for the Lord. I look at their Facebook profiles today and, and under beliefs, it, it'll maybe say agnostic. And I stop and I think, what happened? Like, how does that happen? And here's the thing, that could happen to any one of us. Like the seed doesn't change. God's word is unchanging. What does change? Soil. The soil of our hearts change. How does it change? When you neglect it. Like you don't just walk out, like if you're a gardener, you don't just walk out to your garden when it's time to start that process and just throw seed on it and neglect it all year long. If you neglect the soil in the garden, it just hardens. It's not ready for the seed. So what you've got to do is you've got to constantly be paying attention to the condition of your heart until the soil of your heart. In Matthew 13, Jesus speaks of those who close their ears, shut their eyes, and hardened their hearts. Which I think is why Proverbs says to us, hey, guard your hearts above all else. Above everything else, guard your heart. So can I ask you, how's your heart right now? And just be honest. And some of you might say, well, it's kind of hard. That's good, just be honest. 
Are you paying attention to it? Now I'll tell you this, one of the challenges of having a hard heart is that a hard heart makes it difficult to recognize a hard heart. Thank you. <laughs> now listen, if you have physical heart problems in your, I'm talking about your physical heart now. <clears throat> it's not wise to self-diagnose. Now you go to a doctor, right? And they utilize their expertise and they utilize their tools to get underneath the surface to see if there's a blockage going on. I don't just go, well, I kind of feel like I got a blockage. Or I think everything's okay. You don't self-diagnose. That's what you need something else outside of you to diagnose your heart. That's why God's word says that it penetrates. It's a double-edged sword. It divides. gets down into the surface. So can I just briefly kind of maybe mention a few indications of a heart or a hardening heart? I'll just kind of go through these. One would be, I think the biggest one is cynicism. When I see cynicism, cynicism is different from skepticism. I'm naturally a, a skeptical person. So if you come to me with a little bit of skepticism, man, you're my people. I get it. Cynicism, different animal. I was reading an article in the New York Times this last week about how the media almost exclusively focuses on fear and bad news. And uh, at the very end of the uh, article, it said this statement, I wrote it down. So sometimes healthy skepticism can turn into reflexive cynicism. So if your response to almost everything is cynical, that's an indication of a hardening heart. One would be, a, another one would be short fused. You're just so short with people. Bitterness would be an indication. Unforgiving spirit, like I, I'm not even going to entertain the idea of forgiving that person who hurt me. Closed and shut down. Not teachable. Expert on everything. I've kind of noticed this lately. Because um, we all have instant access to all kinds of information. We have access to more information than any other generation of people in the history of the world. And it's not doing us any good. And because part of the problem is that we all think we're experts. Have you noticed that? I have not met anybody that isn't an expert in the vaccines. It's amazing. Like I, I've not met anybody that isn't an expert in, you know, Paul, why? Because, well, it's like, well, if I got a question, then I'm just going to kind of open it up on my little magic little black box here. And I get information. And if you disagree with me, then I cancel you. <laughs> because it's offensive for you to disagree with me. Like that's threatening when you disagree with me. No, it could just be thoughtful. We're trying to get to better answers, Right. Not teachable. I'm not going to ask any questions. I already know. How about this one? Assume the worst. Man, I know what that feels like. When everybody knows you, you don't really know everybody. As many people know you, they'll assume the worst about your mo I, I guarantee you I'm going to get emails about why I have holes in my jeans <laughs> this weekend. I guarantee it. Just to sit, Aaron, you're a 45-year-old man. I, I, just, I know. I, I get it. They're comfortable, all right? Um, resentment. That's one. Blame, major loss, like earth-shattering loss. If you don't deal with that in a healthy way, it'll eventually lead to a hard heart. Defensiveness, unmet expectations. I'll give you one more. Bad or weird church experiences. That'll harden a lot of hearts. And it grieves me every time I hear about that. I, was, <laughs> I wrote this uh, message on a plane on Thursday, flying back from Southern California. The guy sitting next to me, probably in his late 50s, early 60s, and uh, we strike up a conversation. And uh, he lives in Boston, he's in finance. And we're talking, and I said, hey man, how's things going in Boston? He was kind of talking to me about it and kind of giving me his perspectives and opinions on some different things. And, and then he asked me the question that I've shared with you before that I always fear when I'm on a plane. <laughs> he, he said, so what do you do for a living? And I've always been a little bit apprehensive to answer that question because you just never know what kind of a response you're going to get. And, and I've shared that with you before. I, and I've, told, I've been very confessional with you and said, well, you know, whenever people ask me that question, I'm so tempted to lie. And I'm so tempted to just be like, oh, I'm in sales. You know, I, I just like, want a weenie out of it, you know. And, uh, and, and many of you have chastised me. And you said, Aaron, you should not be ashamed that you're a pastor. You should say it confidently and tell them. And so I remembered that. And so he goes, what do you do for a living? And I looked right at him behind my mask. And I said, I'm a pastor. And then I just locked eyes with him. I was like, I'm not looking away from you. <laughs> and here was his response. He goes, oh. He goes, I'll mind my P's and Q's. 
I didn't even know what that meant. I was like, I had to Google it later. <laughs> but I looked at him and I said, hey, man, there's no need. Like, I'm not, exam I'm like, you're not on trial here. And he goes, well, no, let me tell you what I mean. And I was like, oh, please do. <laughs> and, and he began to share with me how growing up, his mom was very religious, but he wasn't. And it really bothered her. And he said, when, he goes, when I was 18, right before I was getting ready to go off to college, like in her last ditch effort to get me religious, uh, she knew I liked golf. And so she set up a golf game, which she said three of her uh, male friends that could kind of, you know, mentor me or give me some good advice before I headed off for college. And he goes, but because she was paying for the golf game, I went and he goes, I showed up at the first tee box. These three guys were there and they were all three priests. And he goes, my mom was like trying to get me religious within 18 holes. That wasn't a very effective strategy. Hey, listen, that just hardened his heart. So how are our hearts most commonly hardened? And, I, and here's the thing is that I never want to stand up here and preach to you without first preaching to me. So when I study the passage, when I look at it, I don't sit there and go, well, you know, what can I say to you to convict you? Or first of all, I go, God, what are you saying to me? And so I thought to myself, how is my heart most, hardened, most commonly hardened? And here's the three things that I came up with. Maybe you can identify when I'm misunderstood. And I'll tell you what, man, when I'm misunderstood over and over again, and I'm trying to, I mean well, my intentions are good, and somebody misunderstands me, it hardens my heart. Here's another one is um, when I've been hurt in some way, just the hurts of life. And then I wrote down this next one. When I repeatedly feel like I'm not enough. Repeatedly. Man, I'm trying so hard at work and I just can't please my boss. You know what? After a while, you'll stop trying and you just get hardened. Man, I'm trying so hard to connect with my husband and it's not working. I feel like I'm not enough. And after a while, you'll get hardened. And man, you just repeatedly feel like you're not enough. It leads to a hardened heart. And there isn't a single one of us who came into this life with a hard heart. You were not born into this world with a hard heart. Now you were born into this world with a fallen sin nature, but not a hard heart. That's developed over time by having your heart broken repeatedly. See, here's a tough truth that's so important for us to acknowledge is that over time, life will harden your heart. There's no way around it. That's why Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. He was giving us that heads up. And so left unintended or untended, soil will harden over time. And left untended, your heart will as well. Unmet expectations, crushing losses, piercing betrayals, excruciating pain. There is a lot going on in the soil of our hearts. And it's really, really complicated, which is why I don't treat people like projects. I don't get bent out of shape when somebody that I meet finds out I'm a pastor and they don't believe or is even hostile towards belief, I don't lose any sleep over it because I'm not trying to win a debate and I'm not keeping score. I'm not taking scalps for Jesus. No, the farmer doesn't make the seed grow. A good farmer tends to the soil and trusts the seed to do what only it can underneath the surface. So here's an observation. We've been through an extremely tough year and it ain't quite over yet. It's still punching us in the mouth and everything with the pandemic, political division, social and racial tension, microaggressions, mass shootings, mental health, crumbling families and marriages. That's, that's the real <laughs> endemic going on right now. And Everything feels so personal and so weighty. And uh, we're offended by everything. That's an indication of a hardening heart. And can I say this? We've got maybe more angry Christians than I think I've ever seen. And angry, when you go to social media with your anger, all it does is harden more hearts to the seed of God's word. 
And so when you see people behaving and acting in ways that are ungodly, and you look at their hard hearts, many times for us, we just take a bunch of seed and we're just like, I'm just going to throw it at you harder. And all that's going to do is just the seed's going to bounce off the hard soil and make it even harder. No, as Christ followers, we recognize who is really in control. And we relax and we take a deep breath and we say, God is going to one day come to make things right and restore all things. And I take confidence in that. Therefore, therefore, I can have a sweet spirit towards people who don't see things the way that I see. And I can allow the soil. Because you don't debate anybody into the kingdom of God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So I'm just gonna be confessional to you. I've felt my own heart hardening over the last year. And that's been scary. There have been some really dark moments in my life over the last year where I've just felt myself growing numb to like all of this. I've wanted to quit so many times this last year, more than ever. I've started dreaming of retirement, you know? It's just like, and uh, I've been in leadership ministry for over 20 years. This has been the hardest year, hands down, because it didn't matter what decision we made or didn't make, what we said or didn't say, it was gonna garner intense criticism that got personal. And I didn't know the answer. Part of my responsibility as your lead pastor is to anticipate problems and then try to come up with solutions. I never saw a pandemic coming. I never saw the political division that we saw to the intensity that we saw, all the, the uh, racial and social tensions of this last year. It was at a fever pitch. And so it felt like, you know, what do we do? Like, do we stay closed? Do we open? Well, we're going to garner criticism for both. Do we ask you to wear a mask or are we cool if you don't? I'm going to garner criticism for both. Like, do I say something about racism or do I not? If I say something, I'm going to take shots. If I don't say something, I'm going to take shots. And there were some moments where I felt my heart hardening towards you. And I just didn't want to do it anymore. And I realized that if I stay on that path, it's going to lead to mass destruction in my life. You see, when Christians react that way, it reveals we've lost our trust in the seed of God's word. He's going to restore all the broken things. We put our trust in him and spend less time getting worked up over, you fill in the blank, and more times cultivating the soil of our hearts. As a church, our mission is to remove unnecessary barriers that keep people from Jesus, not adding new ones. And so, when dirt hardens, when the soil gets hard, there's no way for the seed to get in. And when it comes to getting people to Jesus, the thing that many of us as Christ followers overlook is examining the condition of somebody's heart. You don't just throw more seed at it. And can I just say that if you're here joining us for the first time or listening online and you would say, hey, this is all interesting stuff. I don't know that I buy any of it. I don't know that I believe. I've got so many questions about Jesus, the Bible, science, politics, culture. I get it. And I am not a salesman trying to sell you on something. I'm a farmer trying to compel you towards something. Maybe more specifically, someone. And his name is Jesus. And he loves you. And he believes in you, whether you believe in him or not. And he came to reconcile you back to God. And by the way, can I just say this? Jesus doesn't fit in any of our boxes. That was one of his favorite things to do. Hey, hey, like they thought, well, Jesus, you're on our team. He's like, no, I'm not. Well, Jesus, you're on our team over here. No, I'm not. Still the same thing today. We have a tendency to recreate Jesus in our own image. Some of us thought Jesus had blonde hair and blue eyes. He did not. He grew up in the Middle East. He would have been darker complected. Some of us think that Jesus was a Republican. Some of us think he was a Democrat. He ain't either. Jesus came to reconcile you back to God. And he is more gracious than you think and he is for you, not against you. And he's patiently calling out to you. The question is, can you hear him? Can you hear him? Because there's a lot of noise right now. So both of my 
grandfathers on both sides of my family blew their families apart when they were middle-aged. They left their wives, my great-grandmothers, and ran off with other women. My grandfathers were sort of the products of that environment, and it wounded them both in unique ways. And, I, and both of them talked to me about it, but our, and one of them has passed away, one is still alive, but one of them, when I was in college, sat me down and he was telling me about a conversation that he had, the very last conversation that he had with his dad, my great-grandfather, before he went off to the army. And he said, you know, Aaron, uh, your great-granddad, he left our family, but he still was in town with his new family. And, and so I would see him every now and then, and we knew of each other, we just didn't have much of a relationship. And he said, but before I went off to the army, he asked if we could have coffee. And we sat down in this coffee shop and he looked across at me and he said, son, why don't you call me dad? And he said, Aaron, I looked right across the table at him and I said, because you're not. And I could feel the wounding in his words as he shared that story with me. And he said, that was the last time I ever talked to that man while he was alive. And I could see how it had hurt him and hardened him in some way. And I was immediately reminded of that sentiment in the Old Testament, the sins of the father affect the upcoming generations. And I thought, I'm the product of that. And you know what? I can sense that. And I've got a boy of my own. He's 18. He's getting ready to graduate high school, head off to college. I asked him, if, I asked his permission to share this with you, by the way. I used to didn't have to do that. When he was little, I could just use him as an illustration. He was oblivious. He was in the nursery pooping his diaper. I mean, it's just, <laughs> but now he listens, all right? So don't want to embarrass him. So I asked him if I could use this. He gave me permission. And uh, he's so much like me, which helps us because we really connect on some things, but it's also like two parts of a magnet that repel each other. So it's like, sometimes it's hard for us to really connect because of that. And he's getting ready to head off to college. And I'm real emotional and sentimental about this. And so recently I just shared that story. Well, I just shared with you with him. And I said, son, that's in our family. And I can feel that at times. And I said, I never want our hearts to grow hard towards each other. And as you venture off and you get busy with life, I said, we might end up missing each other and we're not intentional enough at communicating with each other. So we, both of us are gonna have to work hard at this. And in that moment, he said, dad, man, being a part of our family is one of my favorite things. See, it doesn't just happen by accident. You gotta cultivate the soil of your heart. When I was in seminary, I took a class called Preaching Through the Parables where I learned to preach the parables. And one of the assignments was we had to pick a parable, study it, write a sermon, deliver it in 30 minutes. It's terrifying. But it gave me practice for this one because that's pretty much what I did this week. And I remember in that class, uh, I learned this. When it came to the parables, the story was the invitation. Jesus was shaking things up and he used this story and others to till the soil of our hearts so that something new could grow. I believe this last year of pandemic and political division and racial tension, all the stuff, all the mass shootings, the stuff that's piling onto us. I believe God's trying to till the soil of our hearts. He's trying to reawaken us so that something new can grow. And I'm emerging out of this season of the dark night of the soul to go, God, what's on the other side of this for us? What do you got? Some, some stuff that we're gonna experience that we never would have without the difficult times. So where do we go from here? Let me just leave you with these two things. Stop trying and start tilling. Some of you are trying to believe. Some of you are trying harder at work. Some of you are trying to go the distance. And I would say there's nothing wrong with trying, but if you just continually stay in that perpetual place of trying to follow Jesus, eventually it'll lead to hardening because you won't ever be enough. Start tilling. Focus on tilling the soil of your heart and see what happens. If you are not in a group, get in a group. If you've not signed up for daily Bible reading, sign up for daily Bible reading. If you're not serving and you've been attending here for more than three months, I guarantee you after a while, like, <laughs> There's only so many things we can do to vary the service. After a while, you'll get bored. After a while, you'll start to grow hard. And if you find yourself in that spot, you jump in and you start serving and God will begin to bring new growth to your spiritual life. Here's the last thing. Stay curious and open, not conclusive and shut down. 
be teachable. Just start asking lots of questions. Trying to prove that God is real or the Bible can be trusted is an exercise in futility. You can't do it either way. And here's the thing, God refuses to come to you on your terms. Jesus let people walk away. The rich young ruler didn't like what Jesus had to say. Jesus like, sell everything you have, give to the poor and follow me. And he's like, I don't think I wanna do that. And Jesus like, okay, see ya. He didn't come back to him and say, let's renegotiate. See, God isn't on trial. You and I are, and he's a gracious judge. And this is a safe place for you to belong even before you believe and to just come as you are. And that's all I want you to do. Just come as you are. Just come every week, tune in every week and just pray this prayer. God, would you please help till the soil of my heart? I'm open. And if you're real and if any of this is true, would you just show yourself to me? And here's the thing, give it six months, give it a year and see what God might do. On my way over here today, I got a text message from a pastor friend of mine that actually pastors right across the street here at our broadcast campus, Eagle Church. His name's Eric Simpson, pastors that church, great guy. And we're friends. He texted me this morning, he goes, hey, praying for you this morning. Grateful for your life and leadership. And then he left me Deuteronomy 32.2. He had no idea what I was preaching today. He said, let my teaching fall like rain and my words descend like dew like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. And I just pray that these words, hopefully, will begin to soften the soil of your heart. We need it. Father, we come to you today and we're so grateful that you are such a master teacher that you use parables to communicate deep kingdom truths that we need to be reminded of. And so God, as a people, we just wanna consecrate our hearts. We just wanna refocus our attention away from all the things that have been distracting us over the last year to really hear from you. God, our hearts, mine included, have grown hard over this past year of bad news. So we come to you and ask that your spirit would soften our hearts so that the seed of your word would do something new and bring about new growth. God, we need healing. We need hope. We need to push out fear and cling to joy. We need to keep our eyes focused upon you and we need to be reminded that you are still on your throne. COVID did not knock you off. You are still on your throne. Political division did not throw you for a curveball. You are still in control and we acknowledge that and we wanna stay on mission with you because it is the only hope of the world. So God, meet us in this place right now. We ask this in Jesus' name and everybody said,